Hello, Monetization Nation. In the last episode with Greg Poirier, we discussed his career journey and three traits of a strong leader. In today's episode, we're going to discuss what the enterprise sales model is and how our companies can switch over to this model. I'm writing a book on credibility marketing and uh, I would love to include that story in there. Is there any other details or examples you'd, you'd like? Would you like to just go into a little more detail about that story? Uh, I don't know if I can mention all the brands, but yeah, um, okay. you, you and I can talk about it afterwards. But, um, you know, somebody much smarter than me came up with this concept at Radiant 6, or at least started doing it there. And that's where I learned it. Um, and uh, my favorite example is uh, there was a very young person. Radiant 6 was a company that specialized in social media interaction for big enterprises. And, um, you know, how do you talk to your customers on Twitter? How do you answer customer support uh, questions or complaints on Twitter? Uh, and, you know, if you're a company, if, if you've ever complained to your airline uh, about your booking or something on social media, and they're one of the big uh, major airlines and they responded quickly, there's a very good chance it's, it's Radiant 6's underlying product at Salesforce that did this. But uh, my favorite story about it is a very large um, food company. They had a young person who was very passionate about social media. And um, he, you know, he had this idea that it could be a, a very good marketing avenue for him. And I think it was one of his first jobs out of university. And, um, you know, he went out, found Radiant 6, uh, you know, purchased the platform, started utilizing, it, et cetera. And he became a rock star at his very, very large um, consumer packaged goods uh, company because we kept taking him. I mean, he was doing a great job, obviously, but we kept taking him to events and featuring him at places like Dreamforce and having him um, do all these great, um, you know, speaking opportunities where instead of just focusing on us getting on stage, we were bringing him on stage and talking about his story. And, you know, I think that was a really great example where he internally gained massive amounts of credibility at that company um, where, you know, honestly, if we hadn't been doing that, I don't think how great a job he was doing would have been as recognized, but because he was getting this really international exposure, um, uh, you know, uh, about working at, with companies like Salesforce, um, you know, it, it really was a boost to his career. Yeah, definitely. And definitely a boost to your organization as well. Okay. Talk to me about the recurring revenue business model. That's another tectonic shift. A lot of people are talking about today. What experience have you had with that? I, I mean, I think most of my career has been at uh, B2B SaaS companies. And of course, most of those companies, the Holy grail is the annual upfront um, contract. So that's, that's what most SaaS companies are striving for. Some of our clients are more on a monthly recurring basis in terms of how they build their clients. But at, at an enterprise level, most are trying to get clients on an annual upfront contract. So that idea in, um, if, you've, if you've got that B2B SaaS DNA, that idea that you want recurring revenue, that is how all SaaS companies really, or most at least, um, function. And so um, you know, all, all the founders at Cloud Kettle and a good chunk of our employees, because a lot of them came from B2B SaaS companies, we already had that in our DNA. And so when I started the company, um, you know, I knew that I wanted to focus on a retainer-based model. So most organizations that do what they do, do what we do, really focus on uh, winning a big project, scaling up, executing on it, and then the project ends, and then they're 
kind of have to figure out what to do with all the team members' internal resources they've built up after that contract ends. And they're, they're really fighting tooth and nail and chasing the dragon on that project by project revenue. We knew that that wasn't really our shtick. We want to have much longer, um, more in-depth relationships with our clients. And it was kind of a requirement uh, for what we did because you know the ecosystems that we're in are so complex, so integrated, so deep that you know it takes a very, very long time to build that type of machine and, and a lot of experience to keep it running. And so we knew that we wanted to pursue clients who were gonna want to be and were interested in having annual retainer relationships. So at Cloud Kettle, I mean, on that recurring revenue model, at Cloud Kettle, almost all our clients are on some kind of retainer contract where they're paying us the same amount of money every month uh, on an annualized contract. And we're building that machine and helping them optimize that machine and Im improve overall what their revenue is. I love it. And, and what difference did that make for you as a business implementing this recurring revenue stream? Well, there's two major parts of it. I mean, there's a lot of benefits and it, it it's really the culture of the company is very different in terms of how we service customers because we know, it, you know, we had constantly you know, want to keep these clients happy because we want them to sign up for another year and continue to grow with us. So, um, you know, culturally it's made the organization much more customer focused. Um, I think from the client side, there's a big benefit because um, a lot of clients that we inherit from other organizations and they have um, Salesforce instances that are struggling or, you know, they've embarked on revenue operations projects that have failed. Part of the issue is that um, the company working on it their goal and what they're incented to do is deliver the project as fast as possible, no matter what, get it done and move on to the next project and send the final invoice. Now, because we're billing every month for the same amount of money, we have to keep that client and need to keep that client happy every single month. Um, and, you know, that forces us to deliver a level of care and white glove service that, you know, most organizations do what we do just don't deliver on. So that's from the client perspective, I think it forces us to be much more client focused and deliver a better product. So in, in my businesses, I have focused on month to month recurring contracts. And I have found that I've been able to keep the customers longer that way because I am forced to keep them happy every single month. And I can't get complacent and just rely on an annual contract or some other type of long-term contract. But every single month, I have to deliver and I have to keep them happy and I have to engage with them and I have to know where they're at. And it, I know a lot of people sign long-term contracts because they think they're going to get more money and they're going to make more money in the long-term. But I, I found exactly the opposite, that the short-term contract forces me to do what it takes to keep them longer. What are your thoughts on that? I think it, it probably depends a lot on the industry that you're servicing. So, you know, we specifically primarily service large enterprises. I think two thirds of our revenue last year came from publicly traded companies. Another good chunk of it came from fairly substantial um, government organizations. And so when you, you service organizations that large, um, there, there's a lot of complexity around how annual budgeting works. Right. And you either need to be part of that annual budget or you're not. Or you wait till the next year. And so uh, I think a, a lot of 
a lot of the reason that we need to be on that annual cycle, although certainly selfishly um, it is good for us, also has to do with a lot of the complexities of working with companies um, who you know, have their publicly traded. There's a lot of complexity around what annual budgeting looks like. Yep. If they don't lock it in, there's a good chance they're going to lose it, whether they like you or not, if there's a soft quarter. And there's, there's a lot of other stuff on the go there. Um, yeah. You know, what I would say is most of our clients you know, their legal teams are fairly sophisticated and their MSAs generally will give them some kind of 60 day out if they're unsatisfied with um, service, even though it's an annual contract. So, you know, even, even though it's annualized, it could go away at any time if they became unhappy. Right. That makes a lot of sense with the larger companies in the budgeting cycles. Okay. Let's shift a bit to the enterprise sales expertise that you have. At what point do organizations make the shift that they, they need to transition to enterprise sales? So for a lot of the organizations we work with, um, because historically we've done a lot of work with um, B2B focused um, SaaS companies, the shift comes as a result of either going public or closing a major round. And as, as part of one of those two exercises, they're making a lot of commitments in terms of how their revenue model is gonna change in the upcoming 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, et cetera. They, they have to do that in order to you know, close the investment or um, you know, go into the IPO process and realize the funding that's gonna come from that. Now, um, so that's usually one of the two things that is causing that desire to shift to enterprise. Um, and many are well positioned to do it. So it'll, it'll have been part of their roadmap all along. Um, some are better able to do it than others. And it, it, a lot of it depends on the culture of the organization and their willingness and ability to um, suffer short-term costs in order to pursue that long-term game. Um, and I, I can go into that more depth if we have a minute. Yeah, so, yeah, please do. So what happens, and I'll use B2B SaaS companies as the easy, lazy example here, is um, you know a lot of these companies uh, gain critical mass and achieve product market fit, selling something that is an easy credit card swipe for one person. So they can very easily uh, you know absorb that $50 a month license fee or $90 a month license fee on their company credit card, no questions asked. And um, how long it takes to close those sales, uh, the marketing effort that it takes, the sales effort is, is very low and somewhat frictionless. And um, to move to enterprise sales, uh, you know, you have to deploy an enterprise sales team and machine, and it, it might take six months to get that house in order. And at the start, senior leadership, including the sales team and the marketing team and your CRO uh, or your CFO, probably, um, you know, they're all very nodding of heads and agreeing that you need to go up market and enterprise and everybody wants these six, seven figure deals. And yes, we all understand that it's going to take a long time before we get there. And maybe we're not going to close our big first six-figure deal or consistently start generating six-figure deals on a regular basis for a year. We all understand that. Yes, we know um, these salespeople are going to get paid a lot of money initially, and there'll be a lot of travel, and it's going to be expensive. We all get that. Um, and you, we know we're not going to see early wins, and it's not going to be you know like our normal turn and burn sales process. And everybody agrees on that. And then 
usually about six months in um, when those expense reports from those salespeople are rolling in, they're seeing the increased license cost for the um, upgraded marketing operations platform, um, some of the investments they've had to make um, on the sales operations ecosystem, buying new enrichment solutions, ABM solutions, um, you, you know, a lot of extra added value um, into the Salesforce ecosystem the salaries that these salespeople are going to command because you probably have to pay them as if they're achieving a full quota for the first two quarters, even to get them to start with you. Once all those bills start rolling in, usually at around the end of the second quarter, people start asking a lot of questions and the patience uh, that was committed to upfront starts to dissipate very quickly. Um, and so usually when our clients are in that mode, what we ask them to do is, um, you know, have the leadership team and it seems very hokey, uh, but have the leadership team, um, you know, sign a letter that says, Hey, we understand we're not going to see the dividends from this event, um, investment for at least 12 months. Yes. We understand that there's going to be all these costs and this is what they look like. And yes, we understand that about six months, we're going to start asking hard questions and we'll have lost our patience. And, you know, we say, you know, you, you don't have to give it to us. You know, this is an internal thing for you. We don't run your sales team, but we recommend that you, you go through this exercise and um, getting them to commit to that. Um, you know, that letter may never be pulled out and looked at, but um, it, it does make a meaningful difference in, you know, somebody later in that C-suite meeting where the first person, uh, usually somebody in finance starts to ask those questions. Um, somebody says, well, you know, remember six months ago, um, somebody said that we would start asking these exact questions. And yeah, so that's, that's usually a good exercise to undertake. And, you know, if people aren't willing to sign that letter and, and commit to the fact that they understand that, that's, that's probably a pretty big red flag. Okay, so besides that, what other common challenges do organizations face when they transition to enterprise sales? Patience um, is definitely the biggest one, which is what I talked about previously. I, the other one tends to be that they, they don't have a way of understanding what's working yet. So if we look at um, an organization that might have had a really, really good um, method of measuring pipeline, so hey, we know, and you know, one of our clients is very much in this mode right now, um, their finance team was, was able historically to predict within two or 3% uh, based on the total number of, you know, the total pipeline they had, how much web traffic they're having, et cetera. Within two to 3%, they could predict how much revenue the company was gonna bring in at the end of the quarter, which is very important. Um, They've now um, really expanded into their enterprise efforts and um, that whole prediction and forecasting methodology has fallen apart because, um, you know, when a deal takes 12 months to close, um, everybody's very happy at the end, obviously, when somebody signs a contract for a quarter of a million dollars or half a million dollars or whatever, but that really makes forecasting difficult. And, um, you know, getting that ability to have that pipeline council, that forecasting machine, that ability to understand where pipeline is weak um, quarters out is really key. And it's an area that most companies going up market are very soft in, but it's really important in the context of how much uh, that size of those deals is going to sway the revenue number from one quarter to the next, especially if you look at opportunities that close seven days early before the quarter ends versus seven days later 
after the quarter ends, when, when you're talking about your numbers, um, because you're a publicly traded company, that's material. So you've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing this for a dozen years. How has sales and marketing changed during that time? Well, I mean, when I started, there was certainly still a lot of Rolodex, golf course, um, friends at the club style uh, enterprise sales folks out there. I think there's not many of them left. Uh, you know, that doesn't work nearly as well as it used to. And I, I think that probably benefits us all, except maybe that one small subsegment of people. Um, I think also the, the buyer is just so much more sophisticated. There's, there's a lot of data showing uh, how much more information the buyer has gathered, how much they know about you, how much they know about what they need, how much they know about the whole process before they're ever even on your radar, um, before they ever, ever you know, asked to speak to somebody. And that's good and bad. I mean, unfortunately, it, it makes it much more difficult to tell your own story and um, get in front of uh, the customer and, and shape or educate and broaden maybe the solution they're looking for. Um, so that, that is more challenging, but, but I think it's better. I mean, I think people are much more likely to choose the platform they need now. There, there used to be a lot more snake oil um, being successfully sold. Now it's not that all that snake oil has gone away. It's just peddling. It has become a lot more difficult. And I think for everybody in the industry, that's better. You've mentioned product market fit earlier in the, in the interview. Can you tell us a little bit more what you mean by product market fit and, and what are some of the, your, your best secrets and strategies to help achieve that? Yeah, I, I mean, I wish I knew what the secret to achieving product market fit was. Uh, you know, I was very lucky when I went to Radiant 6, we had product market fit. And it was the first SaaS company I worked at. So we had a lot of salespeople who, and this is not a knock on them, but a lot of them were order takers. I mean, essentially, the product was so good and the timing was so right of us entering the market that really big companies were phoning us and asking to buy our product. And, um, you know, that was a brilliant place to be in. And, yeah. you know, you have that tailwind of, um, you know, sales cycles being much more quick, um, revenue hitting the bucks much more quickly. Uh, it's easier to make the sale. Um, if you're particularly sexy, um, you know, you might get into the C-suite for conversations in a way that you wouldn't if you're a much more boring solution. So if you, if you can, I mean, everybody wants to hit product market fit that, the biggest thing, uh, you know, the biggest indicator I would say that we've seen across our clients of when they hit product market fit is that um, you can see that the a good chunk of the salespeople, particularly the ones who are in the non-ultra high enterprise space, are really migrating to becoming order takers. So a lot of people are coming to the website and they're filling out a form and they're asking to speak to sales. And, and that's usually a very good indicator that you've hit product market fit. There's much more scientific um, methods for looking at it, but I think that's a usual, very good litmus test. Um, you know, the, the problem with it is that um, when you're blessed with that product that sells itself, it makes it very hard to get tight on the other parts of your sales and marketing game. So when there is a dump truck of money that is showing up at the back door every single day um, from a lot of SMB sales, it is very hard to buckle down and do the very hard measurement and optimization and make difficult decisions about which salespeople are performing and which ones aren't and making difficult decisions about allocating ad budgets because, hey, we're selling lots of stuff. It's shipping. Uh, we don't have to make those hard decisions. Um, you know, that rising tide is, uh, you know, 
raising all ships and you know it it it's a beautiful thing to have um but it it does tend to make the sales and marketing team sloppy um and uh you know if you've if you've got that wonderful product market tailwind pushing you along shishitra um, Mahetra, I'm pronouncing the name wrong almost certainly, but on the Masters of Scale podcast with Reed Hoffman, what they were talking about was having a really heavy tailwind that is pushing you along and it allows you to get over a lot of bumps in the road that if you didn't have that product market fit, you would just get stopped at. Um, but you can kind of float over them if you have that product market fit. And that's a beautiful place to be. And as, as someone who was fortunate to be at Radiant 6 when we had product market fit, and then, you know, we were acquired by Salesforce and they had a lot of product market fit. Um, then I went to two uh, SaaS companies where we definitely did not have product market fit. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, like, I know what it looks like very clearly, but um, I don't think any of us can really figure out or has really figured out exactly how you do it. I think you have to be really customer centric, but other than that, it's, it's a very difficult challenge. Thank you so much, Greg, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Number one, an enterprise sales model focuses on long-term relationships rather than a single transaction. Number two, before we switch to an enterprise sales model, we want to make sure our product or service satisfies a strong market demand. Number three, we need to be very customer-centric. Number four, enterprise sales takes a lot of patience. Number five, we should make sure our team is committed to our goals at the beginning and make sure they know how long the transaction process can take. Number six, while revenue within an enterprise sales model can be very unpredictable in the beginning, it's really important to know how much the size of deals is going to sway the revenue number from one quarter to the next. Number seven, we can use customer testimonials, stories, reviews, and case studies to build our credibility and get to our audience indirectly. Number eight, recurring revenue helps us stay customer centric since we want to keep our clients happy every month since they're paying us every month. To learn more about or connect with Greg, you can connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter or visit his website at cloudkettle.com. And there's links to each of these sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get my free ebook about passion marketing and learn how to identify and leverage the highest passions of our ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in your enterprise sales. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.